is from John chapter 2, verse 1 to 25. This is found on page 861 in the Church's Bible. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, Everyone brings out the choice wine first, and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. What Jesus did here in the Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory, and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and brothers and his disciples. There they stayed for a few days. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple courts, he found people selling cattle, sheep and doves and others sitting at tables exchanging money. So he made a whip out of cords and drove all from the temple courts, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. To those who sold doves, he said, Get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. His disciples remembered that it is written, Zeal for your house will consume me. The Jews then responded to him, What sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. They replied, It has taken 46 years to build this temple and you are going to raise it in three days? For the temple he had spoken of was his body and he was raised from the dead. His disciples, re After he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. Then they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. Now while he was in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, many people saw the signs he was performing and believed in his name. But Jesus would not entrust himself to them, for he knew all people. He did not need any testimony about mankind, for he knew what was in each person. This is the word of the Lord. Well, thank you, Yen, and please keep your Bibles open. Well, imagine a world where there are no iPhones and no cameras on our phones. Uh, imagine a world where taking photos were, was a slow process, it, and it would take years to master the art of photography. Imagine a world where you had to buy rolls of film and go to a store to have your photos printed. Imagine a world where photos didn't instantly appear on a screen and one company dominated the photographic industry. For most of us, it's not hard to imagine, but for some of us, you might not even know what I'm talking about. Such a world did exist in the 1970s when Stephen Sasson uh, started working at Eastman Kodak. Uh, Stephen joined Kodak as a young engineer. Uh, at only 24 years old and two years at the company, he invented the first digital camera in the world, uh, the first digital camera to ever see the light of day. Uh, this was groundbreaking, the beginning of the digital revolution as we know it. But hardly a soul on earth knew anything about this digital camera. Uh, Stephen de demonstrated his groundbreaking innovation 
uh, to groups of Kodak executives, uh, from the marketing team to the technical team and even the business uh, unit. He, he, he got the executives into a room, he'd take a photo of them, and then moments later, he'll have the photo appear on the black and white TV. And you think all the executives would be excited about his new invention, uh, just like a bunch of schoolgirls at a Harry Styles concert. But they weren't. Their response was tepid at best. This is what Stephen said. They were convinced, that is, the executives of Kodak were convinced that no one would ever want to look at their picture on a television, television set. A print had been with us for over 100 years. No one was complaining about prints. They were very inexpensive. And so why would anyone want to look at their picture on a television set? You see, everyone in the world, uh, they were happy with the status quo. No one was looking for change. And given Kodak's effective monopoly in the photographic industry in the United States, printing photos was akin to printing money for them. They had an excellent business model and it worked. They were raking it in and so why change it? And so Stephen was told to keep it quiet. He wasn't allowed to talk about his invention publicly or show his prototype to anyone outside of Kodak. You see, friends, change is hard, isn't it? It was hard for Kodak to, to accept change and the changing world, especially when there's this real sense of loss, whether it's financial, like the federal government's proposal to double the tax rate of superannuation accounts over $3 million, or whether it's emotional, like the loss of a relationship or when a loved one passes away. There's an article uh, by the Harvard Business Review about change, and it says that change is difficult for various reasons, like the increase in uncertainty in our lives. What will the future hold with this change? Or the loss of control. How will I manage this change? And in today's passage, Jesus brings about change. And the question for us this morning is whether we'll embrace the change he brings or resist the change he offers. Now the first change Jesus brings is, isn't so much about changing water into wine so much as inaugurating the new era of the kingdom of God. Just like Stephen inaugurated the digital age of photography, so Jesus inaugurates the kingdom of God in his first miracle recorded for us. Now, as the story goes, there's a wedding in Cana in Galilee. Uh, now, Cana uh, is about seven, seven kilometers northeast of Nazareth, uh, where Jesus was raised. Uh, it's a bit like Malvern is to Camberwell, or Camberwell is to Mount Albert. It's not a very far town from Nazareth. Uh, and so, practically, they were neighboring towns, and so it was common for them to have friends in these neighboring towns, just as it is common for us to have friends in the next suburb. And so it's likely that some of um, uh, the family friends of Joseph and Mary um, were getting married, uh, which not only explains why Jesus and his disciples were invited to this wedding in this neighboring town, but why Mary was probably in charge of catering. And so when the wine runs out, Mary tells Jesus to sort it out. Verse 1, On the third day a wedding took place at Canaan, Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. Uh, when the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. Now, Jewish weddings often lasted a week. And each day, new guests would come uh, and celebrate uh, this special occasion with the bride and groom. And so what must have been a couple of days into the wedding celebrations, uh, the wine runs out. 
Now, we don't know why Mary approached Jesus to solve this problem. Maybe uh, she thought he and his disciples could pop by the local winery, bring back a couple barrels of wine, and therefore be able to supply the wedding with more wine. But as we've been told in last week's passage, since Jesus' baptism, when the Spirit of God came upon him and remained on him, Jesus was no longer the carpenter of Nazareth, but the Lamb of God who will take away the sins of the world. He was no longer just Mary's son, but the anointed one of God, the promised Messiah. And so Jesus responds to his mother, not as mum, but as woman. That is, he's suddenly telling her that the way she must now relate to him is no longer just as a son, but as king. She must now change the way in which she sees him and his role in her life, no longer as a mother to a son, but as a mother to a king. That's why Jesus replies the way he does. He doesn't respond with mom, but with woman. Verse 4, woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, my hour has not yet come. Now, this is a strange response, isn't it? It's baffled many minds for many years, and it's uh, uh, baffled me, even though I wrote an essay on the very words, my hour in the Gospel of John, and it still baffles me today. But I think what's going on here is that is this. The hour that Jesus speaks of is referred to eight times in the Gospel. And he points to his arrest and death, resurrection and ascension. That is, the hour in the Gospel of John refers to the hour of the glorification of Jesus. And when that time comes, the promise of abundant blessings will be fulfilled. And the abundant blessings include the abundant overflow of new wine at the wedding banquet of Jesus and his bride, the church. We see this prophecy in various passages in the Old Testament, such as Amos chapter 9. So you'll see it on the screen. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when the reaper will be overtaken by the plowman and the planter by the one treading grapes. New wine will drip from the mountains and flow from all the hills. At the day, um, I will bring back my exiled people Israel. They will rebuild the ruined cities and live in them. They will plant vineyards and drink their wine. They will make gardens and eat their fruit. The, the, the prophecy in Amos is referring to the end of exile, the end of God's judgment and punishment over God's people. And when that day comes, new wine will overflow. But like most of us, what Jesus goes on uh, goes over Mary's head. Uh, and so she has no idea what he's talking about. What are you talking about? My hour has not come. And so she still expects Jesus to get the job done. There's no more wine. We need wine. So verse 5, his mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now even though the hour of Jesus' glorification, that is his death, resurrection and ascension, has not yet come, it's not time for that yet, the time for the outpouring of this new wine, after the judgment of God, the return of the exile of God's people, has not yet come, Jesus obliges. He obliges, I think, because he wants to take this opportunity at this earthly wedding banquet to give them a foretaste of the heavenly wedding banquet that is to come. He wants to give them a glimpse of the glory that is to come. 
And so Jesus turned six stone jars of water into the finest wine. Verse 6. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Now notice that these six stone jars aren't any ordinary jars. We're specifically told that these were used by the Jews for ceremonial washing. Now as far as I can tell, ceremonial washing here refers to the traditions of the elders, like we see in Mark chapter 7. It is the tradition of the elders that requires the Jews to wash their hands in certain ways so that they're ceremonially clean, so that they can participate and eat food. And Jesus is saying, I'm going to do away with your traditions. I'm going to replace the ceremonial washing of your traditions or the old covenant with the new wine of the new kingdom. So verse 7, Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled, it to the, filled them to the bring, and then he told them, Now draw some, of, some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, Everyone brings out the choice wine first, and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till last. Till now. Now, I don't normally drink wine, and I can't really tell the difference between a good quality wine uh, versus a cheap wine. And so, if I was there at the banquet, I wouldn't have known any different. But what Jesus did wasn't just change, did you notice, water into ordinary wine, but into choice wine, the fine wine. So, I thought I'd go to uh, Dan Murphy's website and see how much a bottle of fine wine is. I've heard of Penfold's bin, 95 Grange before, and notice that it sells for $989.99 for a 750-milliliter bottle. What a bargain. But if we had six stone water jars of 20, 30 gallons each, that's about 600 litres of wine, of fine wine. And so if we converted 750-milliliters of Grange, 95 into 600 litres, that is about $791,992 worth of wine. That's enough money to buy a nice house in some suburbs in Melbourne. You see, the point here is that Jesus doesn't just offer what's sufficient. His offer is extravagant, more than you can imagine and better than you can expect. And if this miracle, this sign, is simply a foretaste of the heavenly banquet that is to come, imagine how good the heavenly banquet is going to be for you and me, for those of us who have put our trust in Jesus. And the Apostle John tells us that this was Jesus' first sign. He revealed his glory in this sign, the sign that points us to him, the Christ. And his disciples believed in him, we're told. Verse 11, what Jesus did here in Canaan of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory, and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum and his, uh, with his mother and brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. You see, in John's Gospel, seven signs are recounted in detail for us, and this is the first. And each time the sign is given, it points us to Jesus and who he is. The Messiah, the Christ, the promised one of God, the Son of God, the Lamb who takes away the sin of the world. 
And so that is the first sign, the first change. The change in relationship between Mary and her son Jesus. The change of water into wine. The change of era that the new kingdom has come. But now we turn from the new wine to the new temple, the second part of our passage today. So from a Jewish wedding, we now go to a Jewish Passover, verse 13. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now every year, Jews throughout the land uh, would go up to Jerusalem, to the temple, uh, to celebrate the Passover, Uh, uh, whereas the ceremonial washing may have been a tradition of the elders. Here, the Passover is clearly an instruction from the Lord in Moses' teaching the Pentateuch. And so some of them would have traveled uh, miles and miles uh, to Jerusalem, long distances, even days to get there. So, for example, pilgrims from Galilee would have to track 150 kilometers uh, up to Jerusalem, which will take Two days at best, maybe three, even four days by foot to get there. And so it was a huge commitment. And bringing animals with you to offer sacrifices at the temple was largely impractical. But not only that, because some pilgrims traveled from other countries in the Roman Empire where a different currency was used, they didn't have Tyrian coinage, uh, which was the prescribed currency of the temple. You see a picture of it on the screen. And so as a Jew, what you wanted when you got to Jerusalem was something like a wet market where you could buy live animals to offer as sacrifices and a travel ex where you can exchange currency. And that's exactly what you'd find when you reach the temple courts in Jerusalem. Verse 14, in the temple courts he found people selling cattle, sheep and doves and others sitting at tables exchanging money. Now the temple was divided into different Courts. You should see a picture of it on the screen as well. Uh, you had the inner court of Israel, and then you had the court of women. So women couldn't go in the court of Israel. And the Gentiles, well, they had a court too, the court of Gentiles. And the court of Gentiles meant that that's where non-Jews were allowed to go to worship God, to pray to God, to do business with God. Gentiles weren't allowed to go into the court of women or the court of Israel. Now, the court of Gentiles uh, uh, here was turned from a, into a, a, from a sacred place into a marketplace. The priests of the temple of God had turned the court of the Gentiles from a sacred place into a marketplace. And when Jesus saw this, he made a whip and drove them out. Verse 15, he made a whip of cords and drove all from the temple courts, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. To those who sold doves, he said, Get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. His disciples remembered what it is that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume me, which is a reference to Psalm 69. Now notice that what Jesus' problem is and what his problem isn't. Notice that Jesus doesn't have a problem with the money changers. He doesn't have a problem with people buying and selling animals to offer as sacrifices to God at the temple. If they had set up the marketplace just outside the temple courts, along the streets of uh, Jerusalem, or even at the governor's house, I'm sure this story wouldn't have been recorded for us in the Gospels, but it does. It's here because they had set up the marketplace in the temple of God. You see, what it tells us is that For the Jews, including the priests who served 
in the temple of God, they were more interested in simply following the law than in praying to the lawgiver. They were more interested in fulfilling their obligations before God than in worshipping their God. Their religion was superficial at best and their worship lacked any devotion to God. For what was meant to be a house of prayer was turned into a house of business. What was meant to be a holy and sacred place was turned into a marketplace. And so Jesus overturns the money changes and drives the animals out from the temple. But the Jews wouldn't have a bar of it. And so they confront Jesus. They demand a sign. Verse 18, the Jews then responded to him, What sign can you show us to prove your authority to do this? Now at this point, Jesus could prove his authority by performing more signs here and there, but he doesn't. He takes this opportunity to speak of a new temple. Not a temple made by human hands with bricks and mortar, gold and bronze, but of his own body, his own flesh and blood. Verse 19, Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and I'll raise it again in three days. They replied, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you're going to raise it in three days? But the temple he had spoken of was his body. You see, the Jews couldn't fathom a temple outside the realm of their physical existence. The Jews couldn't comprehend a change so great that the temple was no longer a building but a person. But Jesus once again points to his own death and resurrection and says that the new temple where sins will be forgiven, the new temple through whom prayers can be offered to God and business done with God, is no longer a physical building but a personal being. And that is Jesus himself. Now, the Jews didn't get it at that time, and his disciples probably didn't either. But after Jesus' death and resurrection, his disciples finally understood what Jesus was talking about. Verse 22, after he, that is Jesus, was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. Then they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. You see, just as Mary had to change the way she related to Jesus from a son to a king, So Jews now had to change the way they approached God from going to Herod's temple to looking to the risen Lord Jesus. When the executives at Kodak saw Stephen take a photo of them and in a few moments see that exact photo on a TV screen right before their eyes, what they suffered wasn't a lack of belief. Because they believed digital photography wasn't just possible, but in fact it was marketable. People would buy this. The marketing team said they could sell this camera that he had just made, but they won't. And they won't because it will eat away the company's profit from film sales. You see, it wasn't good enough, and it wasn't enough for the execs at Kodak to see Stephen's digital camera work. They needed to believe his word. And what was his word to them? When we built that camera, he says, the argument was over. It was just a matter of time. That is a matter of time for digital photography to take over and 
and cannibalized film photography. But change was hard at Kodak. And to be fair, the concerns of the execs were genuine concerns. They had a good business model. Consumers were happy to buy film and take their photos uh, and get them printed at the local shop. No one was looking for a better and cheaper option. No one was. And so why change the status quo? But as Stephen said, when the digital camera was built, the argument was over. It was just a matter of time. And in a similar way, when Jesus began his ministry, when Jesus came onto the scene, it would have been difficult for Mary, the one who raised him, to no longer see him as just a son, but the King of kings and Lord of lords. When Jesus overturned the table of the money changers and drove the animals out from the temple, it would have been difficult for the Jews to see Jesus not as a criminal who died for his own sins on the cross, but as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. But after Jesus was glorified, the argument was over as it were. It was just a matter of time. And it was. For about 40 years after his death and resurrection, the Romans sacked Jerusalem and destroyed Herod's temple in 70 AD. But Jesus died and rose again three days later, and he now sits at the right hand of God the Father in heaven. And anyone anywhere who prays to God, who wants to talk to God, who wants to do business with God, who wants their sins forgiven by God, can do so. For Jesus is the temple through whom the Lamb of God has taken away the sins of the world. And so no longer do we go to a physical temple, we come to Jesus at the foot of the cross. And in case anyone says that they would believe in Jesus, if only they, they were there 2,000 years ago and they were invited to that wedding in Cana and saw and witnessed Jesus perform the sign and change water into wine and witnessed it for themselves. And if, and if anyone says, oh, if I was there and saw Jesus die and rise again three days later, then I'd believe in Jesus. That's all it takes. If I saw the sign, and I, then I'd believe. Well, the Apostle John makes it clear in his Gospel that such belief will not find a true believer. Verse 23, Now while he was in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, many people saw the signs he was performing and believed in his name. That is, Jesus performed many signs. Not just one or two, but many signs. And many people believed in his name. But what does Jesus say? But Jesus will not entrust himself to them. For he knew all people. He did not need any testimony about mankind, for he knew what was in each person. You see, what we're told here is that believing in Jesus because of the signs is shallow and inauthentic. One commentator puts it like this, Perhaps their belief stopped at wonderment and did not progress to commitment. You see, such faith, faith that comes from seeing a sign, is not genuine but superficial. For genuine faith doesn't rely on being first-hand witnesses of signs and miracles of Jesus or being eyewitnesses of the resurrection itself. Genuine faith comes from believing in the word of God. Just as his disciples did, we saw this early in verse 22. After he was raised from the dead, that his disciples record what he had said. Then they believed in what? They believed in scripture. 
and the words that Jesus had spoken. Genuine faith comes from believing in the word of God. The executives at Kodak didn't listen to Stephen, and so Kodak went from being the most valued photographic company in the world to going broke in 2012 and filed for bankruptcy. And if we fail to listen to Jesus and fail to relate to him as our king and to believe in his word and the word of scripture that's been given to us, if we fail to trust in him as the Lamb of God, the new temple of God who takes away the sins of the world, we might be the smartest guy on earth. We might be the richest girl on earth. But we will be declared bankrupt of all hope and life when Jesus returns. But if we're willing to change, even if it's hard, and if we're willing to change sides and turn to Jesus, no matter how hard it is, no matter who might resist us, we will have life and life in the fullest. For our sins will be forgiven, our thirst will be quenched, our hunger will be satisfied, our hearts will be comforted and our joy will overflow. And when Jesus returns, we will enjoy the banquet of the bridegroom where the wine will overflow and the celebrations will never end. For we will then feast with Christ, our bridegroom, and we, the church, as the bride of Christ. Amen.